It's Wednesday afternoon here at the Radio 1190 studio, which means that it's time for the Howell Stern Sports Show. Obviously a ton to get to today. As always, another devastating loss for the football team in Tucson against the Arizona Wildcats. The secondary continues to struggle. We'll dissect all of that. Plus, Mike Leach earlier this week said that Ralphie was his favorite mascot. Apparently he has an interest in live animals or something like that, which is very Mike Leach-like, mm-hmm. right? The man loves his animals. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't take an animal away, uh, a man away from his animals. That's a good point, <laughs> Chase. And then the men's basketball team, they wrapped up the exhibition portion of their season. They play their home opener against Drake next Tuesday, and we'll get into that a little bit as well. But obviously, we have to start where we always start with the football team. Now, the past two games, they've given up 695, just five yards short of 700. You heard that right. 695 passing yards and eight touchdowns through the air, which is deplorable, for lack of a better word. Hey, right um, after Election Day, it's very timely to use yes, the word deplorable. Oh, unbelie- unbelievably <laughs> timely. I couldn't, couldn't think of a better time, but... This secondary has really struggles, and it seems like, I mean, not having Evan Worthington has to impact them a little bit, right? Because he's a senior presence with experience back there. But at the cornerback position, it just seems like whoever they trot out there is struggles mightily, whether it's Trey Eudofia, Dante Wigley, or McKee Blackman, who we've seen uh, run out in the past few games. It just, it just seems like this is a unit that's struggling a lot, and as it stands right now, I personally believe if they continue to play this poorly, they will cost the Buffs a chance at a bowl berth. Right, and this week we did see a lot of Mickey Blackman, and I, I thought he played okay. He was able to stay with the receivers a little bit better than uh, both Dante Wigley and Trey Udofia have this year. He was right there in position to make a play. It just he had an inability to make the play. He wasn't jumping. He wasn't turning around to the ball when it was coming. So he wasn't able to get it. But, yeah, these cornerbacks, they've been torched, and we've kind of known about it since at least USC. But even before then, we saw glimpses of this defensive back group just getting way too torched. That's that's the right word. And they're going to have to figure something out because this secondary is supposed to be the bright spot of the team every year under head coach Mike McIntyre. That's supposed to be his his position group, the position group that McIntyre is always able to get ready. And this year he hasn't been able to do that. And part, and it, it could hurt them in recruiting because all these defensive backs want to play for CU because they see that they've been able to put some guys into the NFL the last few years. And then this year they can't guard anybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, Akella Witherspoon, Awuze, Oliver, those are all nice brand names to have here. But as of recently, they've just struggled mightily as a group overall. And I don't know, to be honest with you, how much of it can be chalked up to coaching because they definitely have some nice physical products out there. Wiggly and Udofia are wider, have larger wingspans. They're good athletes, but down after down, play after play, they just struggle to get the job done, period. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Part of it to me is coaching because we've seen the cornerbacks in the past they're able to turn around and make a play on the ball. How many times do we see these cornerbacks just stay staring at the wide receiver and then they get called for pass interference or something something else happens, the wide receiver ends up catching it because he's the only one looking at the ball? Part of that is technique. They have to teach the right things, get it into their head, and it doesn't look like they're doing the right technique. It doesn't look like they're reading these routes properly. We've seen them beat on way too many double moves. 
So a lot of that is coaching, getting them prepared for the game. And then some of it is just being able to make the play, which obviously Coach McIntyre has complained about a lot this week after answering a few questions. He says that it's just a few plays that the cornerbacks need to make, and it would have changed the game. Well, so. well let, me make, let me make a point about that. The man is in his sixth year coaching in the Pac-12. Kevin Sumlin is in his first year as a head coach. Jonathan Smith is in his first year as a head coach. If these two guys are able to bring the best out of their team down the stretch, then why is Mike McIntyre always saying, oh, we should be 7-2, and two. it was a player too? No, it's, that's, that's not what the fan base wants to hear at this point. You need to make those plays, and you need to find a way to win the games because that's, you, you can't do that. And you can't, it, people are just getting tired of hearing the excuses and listening to him point fingers week after week. It's just gotten to a point where it's simply enough. Right, and it's the position group that's his specialty that he's taken a lot of praise for over the past few years that he's been here. And this year, he, he can't really accept the negativity. He, he ends up pushing it back on the players, which I, I, I don't think it's fully on the players when we're talking secondary. I think a few other things are on the players and their ability. But we've seen Trey Udofia and Dante Wigley able to get it done. They did fine last year. They didn't look this bad and this year, yeah. they just get beat way too much. Yeah, and I think part of the worrisome aspect of it is that these are no-name receivers for Arizona. Aside from Sean Brown and maybe to a lesser extent, Sean Poindexter. I mean, you have Stanley Berryhill, who's fourth on the depth chart. Tony De- Ellison. Tony Ellison had two touchdowns. Devon Cooper had a 55-yard catch and run for a touchdown. I mean... This is not the cream of the crop, and this isn't even Oregon State's receiving core, which was really talented. These are no-name guys who are repeatedly burning these defensive backs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like I said, I think the coverage was a little bit better this year. It didn't seem like they were really getting beat. It was a a couple of one-handed grabs, a couple of plays that could have gone either way, but you do have to make that play at the end, and that that's why we're talking about it. Yeah, we we wouldn't be having this discussion otherwise, but I want to ask you another question. Khalil Tate, the first time he faces the Buffs, comes in for Brandon Dawkins, 327 yards on the ground at four touchdowns. Fast forward a year later in a new offensive system, has a career day through the air, 350 passing yards, five touchdowns. At this point, is it safe to say that he is somewhat like kryptonite for Mike McIntyre? I mean, when he talks, when McIntyre talks about facing Tate, it's like Batman talking about his latest matchup with the Joker. You know what I mean? It just, he seems scared of him. Khalil Tate hates the Buffs. In in the same vein, he probably loves the Buffs because he's had two two career days against him. That that was his best throwing game ever. Yeah. Completion percentage wise, and I'm not even... I don't think it was yards wise, but it, it was pretty yeah, it close. Was. It was his most yards. Yeah, 350 yards was his uh, most. So, pat- yeah, that's, that's two career days. He, he's just had it way too easy on the buffs. And to me, it looked like they were a little bit too worried about his legs. They always had a guy that, that was keeping an eye on him if he wanted to run, and he didn't run all that much. So they got a little bit too worried about him. And Arizona just killed him on, on the RPO. They, they ran so many RPOs. And you just hand it off to J.J. Taylor, and he gets you an easy five, six yards every time. Or you just throw that easy slant, and Khalil Tate was having a heyday. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. It seemed like every time he would chalk, you know, just chuck the ball up in the air 40, 50 yards down the field, and it would land right in someone's chest, and somehow they would catch it. I mean, I felt like I was playing Madden mm-hmm. on, the, on the PS4 or whatever. You the know throws what I mean? were perfect. They were perfect, but, like, how much do you see that in college football happening ever? I can't even remember the last <laughs> time. Yeah, you really don't. Khalil Tate just – the buffs bring the best out of him, and – we saw that on Saturday, but CU had plenty of chances to win. Arizona didn't even score in the first quarter, and so and the Buffs had so many opportunities in the first quarter. They could have been up like 21 nothing early, and, and that probably would have killed Arizona. They wouldn't have been able to come back from that. So it's not like CU – Khalil Tate had a career day, but it's not like CU didn't have plenty of chances to win in that game. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, another thing that McIntyre has attributed their losses to is injuries. Yes, they've lost LaVisca Chanel, who's a Heisman Trophy contender. And obviously he's going to make your team much better. I think he's probably helped them win a game or two when you look at Nebraska and Arizona State. I think he was the difference. At the same time, you have some talented backups on this roster, which comes from the depth and experience. Juwan Winfrey had his first big game of the season last Friday. He finally looks healthy. He did. Especially route running he, he was bringing out all of his best routes on uh friday night and and he, yeah he, he does it looks like that ankle is finally healthy he's able to cut off of it easily and and same with his hamstring obviously he's starting to get that speed back yeah and i'll give you credit chase for predicting that he correctly predicting that he was gonna you know finally come into his own and i think it's happened even after a few injuries kb on ento a guy we hadn't talked about throughout the season at all pretty much had a big game as well in that after KD Nixon went down with uh, an, an injury. And then Darion Rakestraw is the main guy I want to talk about here. He had 10 tackles, an interception, and another pick, pass that he should have picked off. But he looked great in his first game at safety. He had, you know, stellar instincts, played his zones right, had a couple pass breakups. I think he's a guy Buffs fans should be excited for in the future. He kind of reminded me of the Evan Worthington of last year where he, he was just all over the field. You, wherever you looked, you saw number three making a play. Obviously, he had 10 tackles. He, he was just all, all, always around the ball in that game against Arizona. He, he was impressive. Obviously, McIntyre was a little bit critical of that interception. I kind of give him the benefit of the doubt there because he was playing the ball or he was playing the man. He didn't even see the ball. He was going to make a play on the guy. And then all of a sudden it just hits his chest. And if you don't see the ball, you kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Although the coaches will teach him to try to keep his eyes on the ball and the man at the same time. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I have to agree with you on that one. He had such a good game that one minor thing that in the long term wasn't costly and it would have been a hard catch isn't that big of a deal but looking at the wide receiver position obviously you miss LaVisco a whole lot like I said a second ago but is that loss kind of minimized by how good Juwan and Kbion were on Saturday I certainly have to think so especially if they can perform that well going forward it seems like Chef has a good uh, idea of how to get them involved in the game and stuff like that so I'm really happy with the depth they've had they had of a wide receiver right now yeah, both KB and Jawan obviously look really good. Uh, Ento could have scored a touchdown if Montez just threw that fade route properly. He he ruined KB on ruined the cornerback, ruined his ankles, was wide open in the corner of the end zone, and Montez just overthrew it, didn't even give him a chance. And Ento would have had a really good game. He did look good coming in for KD Nixon and Jawan as well. We talked about 
but I do think there is quite a bit of a difference between Visca and everybody else because with Visca, you can give him the ball, and if he has three or four yards of space, he's going to make it at least one or two guys miss, and he's going to take it to the house, whereas some of these other guys just don't have that ability. Not as explosive. Yeah, yeah and so the difference is the, is the home run ability that Visca has. He can go to the end zone anytime he touches the ball, where I think that these guys just don't have that special part of him. They're obviously really good players, but they're just, they just don't have that special part where Visca can take it to the end zone anytime. I, I, I chalk them up a little bit more as possession receivers, mm-hmm. per se. You know, they're, they're not going to do anything great, but they can get you a couple first downs, a couple yards, stuff like that. Anyway, sitting at 5-4, and four, the Buffs have perhaps the toughest team, in, the best team in the Pac-12 on their schedule up next where they play against the Washington Huskies. And we're going to start off the preview of the game with an interesting tidbit from head coach Mike Leach, who earlier this week, like I said at the top, said that Ralphie was his, very, was his favorite mascot, and he proceeded to go on a rant about live animals and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it was just kind of interesting. He was talking all about how he, he loves animals himself, and he, he was just kind of going east and west. It was kind of comparable to a, to a rant, you know, you would hear a professor go on or something like that. I, I mean, it was just, obviously, Mike Leach has always been a charismatic guy with the media. That, that, that much has been well documented, but uh, we're going lis- to listen to that clip right now, Chase has it on his computer, just so we can give the viewers an understanding of exactly what he had to say, because it was interesting, and uh, we're, we're going to play it for you all. So I guess we can. Sorry about technical difficulties here. We will have it momentarily. Sorry about the technical difficulties there, folks. We had some trouble with the transmission and getting the actual soundbite on the air here at 1190. But anyway, what he said, like I was talking about a second ago, is he pretty much just went on a rant about how he loves live livestock. It's so cool that they're doing this in Colorado. And those who've listened to a Mike Leach press conference obviously were not surprised by his thoughts. But still, is. Is that the strangest thing you've probably heard Mike Leach go on a rant about? I mean, I heard him talk once about wedding planning and types of flowers. I, I, didn't, I didn't really catch what he was saying because he's, he's a ranter. But anyhow, was that the strangest thing you heard from Leach? I don't know about the strangest. You're right. He has had some pretty great rants over the years, some stuff that he's just had me completely lost on when he starts discussing pirates and those types of things. Uh, this one was actually... Was he, was he discussing, like, the Pirates of the Caribbean, or was he just... He, he's just really into pirates. If yeah. you've ever seen... If you ever ask him a question about pirates, I think he could go on forever. 
uh, I don't, he's just an interesting guy. He really likes just the interesting things in life as well. He, he likes space. He likes obviously pirates, different animals. And this rant was great. He talked about the Air Force Falcon that really impressed him, which <laughs> he said that he was coaching one time in the Air Force Stadium and the Falcon just flew out of the stadium. He was done watching football. Uh, and obviously he loves Ralphie. He, it's interesting that he loves Ralphie so much because he hasn't beaten CU in Folsom yet. So maybe Ralphie is kind of a bad omen for him. He also called Ralphie a him, which is obviously that's, a little that's, bit that's disrespectful. A, that's violating the golden rule, in my opinion. Right. I, I didn't retweet the video or comment about it on Twitter just because of that. I didn't want to give him praise because you do have to learn that Ralphie is a beautiful female. Today is Women Crush Wednesday, and Ralphie is all of our Women Crush Wednesday today. So it, it was a great rant, though. Obviously, you got to appreciate Mike Leach. He is one of a kind football coach. Is it good, though, that for football coaches to have interests outside of the game, or should they all be these hard nosed, um, not personal, unpersonable human beings? <sighs> That's tough to answer because I kind of like. Every type of coach, I think it just depends on what type of personality you have. We kind of know this about Mike Leach, that he isn't 100% into football. He's not a pure football guy, as some might say. Obviously, he didn't play football in college and that type of stuff. So he he is allowed to have other interests as a lawyer and those types of things. But there are some coaches that I love that only care about football. Like, they have some great answers. I know uh, yesterday... I think it was Will Muschamp, the head coach of South Carolina, was asked about election day, and he didn't even know that it was election day. He, he oh, was like, "God." He was like, "Now I know." <laughs> yeah. And so those types of comments are great as well, but you kind of take everything with what kind of personality you're dealing with. McIntyre is somewhere in between, it seems like. Yeah, I, I, I can I can understand that. It seems like he likes to put on a little bit of a face. For the, uh, for, the, for the media, which is strange, and we'll get into that. But later on in the show, I want to talk about the status of Mike McIntyre as the Buffs head coach. But for now, we'll look ahead to Wazoo, and then after we talk about Mac, we'll get to men's basketball. If the Buffs were shredded up by Jake Luton, who, who th- threw three touchdowns and a half after having five for his entire collegiate career and struggled that much against t- Khalil Tate, Imagine what they're going to do against the best. Imagine how they'll fare against the best quarterback in the country. Gardner Minshew averaging over 390 passing yards a game leads the uh, country in passing yards, completion percentage, and touchdowns. The three biggest statistics, at least in my opinion, for what it's worth for a quarterback. But nonetheless, I imagine the Buffs are going to have their hands full with this guy. Yeah, they're going to have to... Give him some different looks. They're going to have to make him a little bit uncomfortable, and it'll be interesting. This is probably, I would say, the most important game of DG, DJ Elliott's career because he's going to have to come up with a scheme to beat these guys, and it's not going to be easy. In my opinion, I think they have to play a lot of zone defense. We never see CU play zone defense. It's not Mike McIntyre's style, but I think when you have a quarterback that gets out of the pocket as well as Gardner Minshew does and obviously throws out of the pocket as well as Gardner Minshew does, and they always have these four receiver sets, these wild receiver sets that are trying to get guys open, especially man-beater type of sets. I think you have to play a lot of zone defense against this team, and if they're able to scheme some stuff up zone-wise and blitz-wise as well, then I think they'll, they'll be able to slow them down because 
Minshew hasn't had one of those games where he's looked uncomfortable. I think Not every college football quarterback needs to have at least one of those games where what the defense is showing him is not what he wants to see. And that's what DJ Elliott will have to scheme up on Saturday or they won't have a chance against him. My only concern with that is what if Minshew, Minshew is a very high IQ quarterback, right? What if he finds the soft spot in the zone and just takes what the defense gives him and they're just moving the ball down the field 15 yards at a time? I think it's just going to take a little bit more creativity than that. This isn't a team that likes to run the football a whole lot. So maybe you drop an extra man back or something like that. Um, but I don't know. I, I just think that you need to have as much help as possible. You can't leave these guys on an island against the likes of Desmond Patton, Aesop Winston, Deontay Martin. They have three of the best wide receivers in the conference, and they have the proper quarterback to complement them. So I think you just have to draw up something a little bit creative to throw him off balance. They have a good offensive line. Maybe you bring a couple more blitz packages but you, you just you can't let him sit that back there in the pocket and cut it loose all afternoon if you want to shot. Yeah, I think they'll have to show him a lot of different coverages, and they'll have to disguise their coverages pretty well as well. I think if they're able to disguise it and show him different types of coverages, then they can slow him down a little bit. But we've seen the CU defense, they love to play man, and that's obviously why they got crushed against Oregon State in the second half because they refused to go away from their man, and Luton had a heyday on it. So I think... If they show some different coverages, then they will have a chance. But you're right. Minshew is a very smart quarterback. If they make it too easy on him, he, he will shred him. He'll, he'll hang easily 400 yards like he, he has on most of his opponents at this point. From an offensive perspective, the margin for error is very small at this point for CU's offense with the way their defense is playing. And I think you have to be real aggressive, too, especially with a defensive line that's as good as Washington State's and, you know, a secondary that's not as talented. I think you have to take a lot of shots down the field, try to get some chunk plays to swing the momentum in your favor, and ultimately find a way to score touchdowns. You're not going to win this game with field goals, so you have to put the ball in the end zone. So I think that's the key on the offensive side for them. Right. I, I completely agree with you. They're going to have to get in the end zone and get in the end zone often because whoever scores, I know this is obvious, but whoever can get to 40 or 50 points is going to win, win the football game. So they're going to have to keep up with Washington State and that takes a lot of big plays. They're going to have to make some big plays down the field. Montez will have to make some big throws down the field, which we haven't seen so much of him yet this year. But yet, you're right. They have a very small margin of error, and they're going to have to find some type of rhythm against this Washington State defense. That is pretty average defense. They will be able to score with score against them quite often. It just depends on will they be able to keep up with Washington State on the other side. And the offensive line needs to find a way to step up. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how else to put it. We've been rotating through the best five for the first nine games of the season. Against Arizona, it seemed like their lineup was solidified maybe a little bit more, at least at the tackle position where Phillips gotten a lot more playing time and Will Sherman on the left side as well. But you've got to give Montez some time to throw. And you can't let him take these monster hits because it's only a matter of time before he gets injured. Yeah, it'll be interesting what they want to do with the offensive line. Against or against Oregon State, they went with pretty much the same offensive line for the entire game from left to right. It was Sherman, Hagler, Purcell, uh, Lenat, and then Frank Phillip, as you mentioned. And then against Arizona, they kind of went away from that as they started giving up too many sacks. Washington State has the number one 
has had the most sacks of any defense in the Pac-12. So, yeah, they're going to have to find a way to slow him down, which I don't think is a very easy task. No, absolutely not. But maybe you try to keep an extra tight end back. Some Do, do something, anything to improve the pass blocking because that has been literally the Achilles heel of this team. We talked about it a little bit before, but I might as well throw my idea out there. I think they need to move Aaron Hagler to tight end. He played tight end in high school. Obviously, he's not a very good offensive lineman. I think we know that after his three years that we've seen him play here. Um, I think his ceiling is a a nice backup. Mm -hmm. And it it looked like he had a bright future his redshirt freshman year, but at this point, I just I think if you move him back to tight end and you just bring him in for blocking situations, they don't throw the tight end anyway. So why not just bring him in and have an extra blocker out there? Chris Bounds is obviously off the team, so they have to go with the only two tight ends that they have that are healthy and not walk-ons, which is uh, Brady Russell and Darion former Jones. walk-on. Brady Russell was a former walk-on. Yeah. So the only other. Uh, tight end that they have on the roster is Vincent Kolodny. So I think they need to move Hagler to tight end, and I, I think that would really help him block, but I, I don't see them doing that at this point in the season. Yeah, and if if they lose this game, things could go south very quickly for the program, not to overdramatize things. Obviously, there will be two games left after that, but all week long we've heard cries on Twitter through uh, people who follow our work on our website Um, everyone seems to want McIntyre out at this point. And it seems surprising to some people that he's not gone already. I'm I'm not surprised by it because I think there's no viable replacement for the last few games already in-house. And, you know, the pool of candidates is not what it's going to be after the season. So I I wouldn't do it immediately or I I wouldn't have rushed to do it by this point at least. But I, I just have to imagine that there's going to come a point in time where enough is enough. Rick George is going to become dissatisfied. It, it's, I, I just think it's going to all come crashing down if they continue to lose, and especially if they get blown out by Washington State. Yeah, the people are definitely fed up. Uh, we've seen that. Especially with the excuses like we were talking about. Yeah, I, mean, I was no going to say, it's that. not necessarily even McIntyre's coaching ability. I think they they know that he is a pretty solid coach. He's obviously not an amazing coach, but he did have that season in 2016 and he, what he could have a team be six and six, seven and five, just about every year. But I don't think CU fans want to settle for that. I think they want something more. And with the way that he has handled the media, pretty much in all of his years here, he's closed practices to the media. Previous coaches had a little bit more of an open door policy. Uh, He only talks to them three days a week. It seems like, in the off season, he doesn't want to show anything either. And then you get into his answers, which just seem like bad answers, basically. Like who, I think that's the best way to put it. It's not the right way to go about answering these questions as a head football coach. He puts way too much blame on other people. He makes up too many excuses, all of that stuff. I think as a fan, you just want to hear your coach be accountable for his actions, take responsibility for losing. And it, that's just not what McIntyre has done. That's absolutely right. And at this point, it seems clear to me and other people as well that he's likely not going to take them over the hedge. I mean, the story of his career is you beat the teams that you should beat and you lose to the teams that you should lose to. But in college football, you got to pull off a couple upsets. you got to win a couple games that you weren't supposed to win. For his CU career, he's 0-16 against ranked opponents when CU is not ranked. And he's 5-36 
when as the underdog, money wise. I mean, that's just you, you can't settle for mediocrity. I get it. It's nice what he did for the program in 2016. He brought them back from you know being a sorry you know school for a while, but at the same time, you got there. There comes a point in time where you just have to expect a little bit more, and you have to find the right person who's going to take you over. And I, I just don't think he's it. Yeah. Bus fans want somebody that can take this team to the top, and it just doesn't look like Mike McIntyre's that guy. Just from some of the things he does, the way that he's kept coaches around a little bit too long, most of it is the coaches that he coached with at San Jose State. He brought a few of those coaches over with him, and it's Brian Lindgren, Clayton Adams, Gary Bernardi, Jim Jeffcoat, these types of coaches that just stayed around on the staff for way too long, usually a, a year too long. And those types of moves is what's going to get you fired. And it just seems like McIntyre's made a little one too many misplays, maybe is the right characterization of it. And I think, yeah, his, t- his clock is ticking here. And coaching is a, what have you, is a what have you done for me lately profession. You know what I mean? It's great that he had these guys from San Jose State. They pulled off a Cinderella story season. But it's not you know, a secret to anyone that they have a lot of units that are vastly underachieving right now. The offensive line is struggling. The secondary is struggling. Clayton Adams was promoted to co-offensive coordinator after arguably his worst year in coaching at all. I mean, you just can't be loyal to guys like that. And sometimes you have to think relative to the best interest of the team. And it seems like McIntyre's just not able to do that. I, I like this move for a lot of reasons. Publicity-wise, he obviously had a scandal a few years ago um, with former coach Joe Tumpkin. Joe Tumpkin, that's right. Uh, you know, he's he's never been real charismatic or good with the media. Never really discloses information. Sounds a lot like a used car salesman. And has struggled from co- coaching on the sidelines. So I think all around this, it would be a nice move to move on from McIntyre, get a new guy in. On that note, I wouldn't want to retread. I wouldn't want a Les Miles. I wouldn't want one of these guys who's been coaching the past 20 years. I would want to trend toward the way the NFL is going now. Get one of these young, energetic play callers who can really move the team forward, like a Seth Luttrell from North Texas or you know, someone of that nature. Yeah, or even on the defensive side, one of these up-and-coming defensive coordinators like a Dave Aranda at LSU or... Even uh, Jimmy Lake, who has proven to be a good defensive coordinator at Washington and a, and a great recruiter, I, I think there's a lot of ways that you could go with this job. I really like some of the smaller uh, head coaches that are coaching FCS teams right now. Neil Brown is one at Troy who's done a very good job. They seem to upset a really good team every single year. Yeah. They had Nebraska this year, LSU last year. And the, this is a fan base that wants – to beat some good teams. Obviously, McIntyre has never really beaten a team that they weren't expected to beat, and that's something that they're going to have to fix. So I think bringing in maybe a, a younger head coach would be the right move. I, I'm with you. I, I haven't been all for Les Miles in a while just because he he's been out of the coaching profession for two years. Yeah, a, a little bit too long. He just doesn't bring anything special. I don't know how much that name resonates amongst high school kids, especially over here on the West Coast. I'm sure if you're from the South, Louisiana, that type of thing, then you do know the name Les Miles as a high school kid. But I don't know if it resonates as much as it used to maybe five years ago. And I I think he would do better at a KU than a CU because 
Exactly. I think they need a coach that can bring them to the top, and I don't know if Les Miles still has that capability. So, yeah, I do. I would like them to look at a younger coach. Yeah, I think you need a guy who's going to kind of bring a new attitude and a breath of fresh air to the program. You know what I mean? Not one of these old school type guys. And on that note, I'm, if, if he does get fired, I'm curious to see, A, when, and B, how much of his staff sticks around for the new regime. I think if they lose to Washington State, if they get blown out to Washington State, and then they lose to Utah the following week, there's a real possibility he gets fired before Cal. It, it, could, it could happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, conceivably. If you, if you think that it can energize the football team for Cal, I could see making that move. If you think it would make it worse for Cal, then I wouldn't want to make that move because obviously Cal is still a game that you can get bowl eligibility if you beat them. So. I don't think bowl eligibility is enough to keep your job at this point. No, I don't think yeah. it's enough to keep your job, but maybe for one more game yeah, I, is I, what I'm thinking. But I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know at this point. I don't really want to speculate too much on, on that topic, but... Um, yeah, I do think his clock is ticking for sure. And and on the from the regime standpoint, I think everyone aside from Shiverini, Darian Hagan, who's been here through two coaching changes now, and possibly Kawan Drake, who's a younger up and coming defensive line coach who's done a very good job with this unit. I think aside from those three, pretty much everyone else is susceptible to getting fired. Yeah, I I would agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what what the new coach does. Depends on what kind of coaches he likes, what coaches he wants to bring in with him. So a lot of things could factor into that in uh, recruiting as well. So, yeah, all, all of that would be interesting. I, I love uh, covering a coaching search. I think it would be really yeah. interesting. Definitely fill my time. I probably wouldn't get great grades, especially with finals coming around. But who really cares when you got a coaching search? Yeah, happening? finals, homework, all of that stuff. Ask anyone in sports media. All that stuff is a moot point at the end of the day. Anyway, something that's not a moot point is just the fact that they, 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 they're under, underachieving vastly. I mean, they have talented players on their roster, right? So you can't keep making the excuse that you're a player two away from winning when you have this many good players and the coaching staff just isn't able to bring the potential out of them. I think that's the most troubling aspect about this coaching staff, and that's why I think they need some new fresh faces there. I don't think it's a lack of talent on the roster. I just think they're not getting the job done. And as Hugh Jackson said earlier this week when talking on first take, when you don't win enough games as a head coach, you don't keep your job. I mean, it's it's that simple. It's not rocket science. Yeah, and as long as they – if they don't win another game, Coach Mack will have 10 wins in the last two years. That's the amount of wins that he had in 2016. So he hasn't been winning enough these past two years for how well that they did in 2016 and how well they've recruited since then. They obviously have some really good talent. They have been hurt by injuries, but not enough injuries you can't to, keep making, to hurt you know, the team. He comes up with the new excuse every day. That's why you have veteran presence in the wide receiver room. That's why you have a guy like Darian Rakestraw who was recruited on as a wide receiver, and you've spent the past two years grooming. You can't make a mistake about one or two plays. If you need Visca to win, why didn't we see him playing at all last year? Yeah. But that would be my question if he keeps on complaining about injuries because obviously you didn't need him last year. You didn't think you needed him last year. So why are you complaining that you don't have him this year? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, I don't know. It seems like he's pretty much coming up with an excuse every day. But also, it's that time of the show where we give our score predictions mm-hmm. first Saturday. You want to run through some injuries first? Just yeah, let's of, let's let's do the in, let's go the injury report. Visca, uh, we heard everything from Mike McIntyre yesterday. Lavisca Chenault was back on in practice on mon- Monday. As a limited participant, he wasn't full participant. He's not ready to give it a full go. My guess, he's probably about 70 or 80% somewhere in that range to being healthy. I don't think he's close to 100%. So it's still, he's still going to be a game-time decision. If it's me, I play him. I make defenses plan for him. I make them think that he's going to be the focal point of the offense. And when he isn't... You know, they, they can adapt on the fly. You know, the defenses can adapt on the fly. Right. I, w- I would use him as a decoy and probably not throw to him that, that much, but at least put him on the field because defenses will worry about him right when he's on the field. But you don't really... That'll open up the rest of the field for these other guys, too. Right. You, so the defense will scheme for it, and then you scheme away from him. I think that's that would be the right move. And I think, as you say, 70 to 80%, that's probably the... That's probably what he is health-wise, and that's probably also the percentage of chance that he plays this weekend. Yeah, and, you know, 70 80% Visca is probably better than most receivers mm-hmm. in the Pac-12 anyway, so I trot him out there. Um, KD is also questionable. I'd put KD Nixon. I'd probably put him at, like, 50-50 at this point. It just kind of depends on him. He truly is day-to-day. Like, it depends on how well that hip feels once we get to Saturday. So I'd put him at questionable uh i don't think jay mcintyre or evan worthington will play and let me let me make one note on that i think the problem with both mcintyre and worthington is they've both suffered several concussions in the in a very short span of time right jay mcintyre had one a few weeks ago against usc which sidelined him for the next game evan worthington suffered one during spring ball then he suffered another one during fall camp which is about a six-month period obviously it's a little bit of a larger window but when you suffer that much repeated head trauma i think it's a good idea to let the guys sit on the side for a little bit yeah so that's three in basically the span of this last year for evan worthington which is just really tough to see honestly i i don't ever want to see a kid have to go through that many concussions and Evan Worthington had a lot of promise after the 2017 season, but he hasn't been playing with the same fire. And I would point that to the concussions. I just think he's not as susceptible to wanting to make that big hit, make that big play because he is worried about his head. So I mean, can you can you blame? No, him you either? you can't blame him at all. And that's kind of the reason why I think that he should they should hold him out for the rest of the season. I I, I feel the same way with Jay McIntyre. Personally, I don't really want to see either of them play because I know that it'll just hurt their future. So um, I don't expect them to play this weekend. I think both of them kind of have a chance of coming back this season, but uh, I wouldn't want to see it. Yeah, I think at this point, Jay McIntyre might be best suited to retire. I mean, I don't I, I hate to put it that way, but I don't know what his chances are of making an NFL roster. I can't say they're high as an undersized slot receiver. Evan Worthington, a little bit of a different story. Mike McIntyre said earlier this week that every time scouts come to practice to watch them play, that all of them are asking about Worthington. I definitely think he fits the bill 
for an NFL uh, defensive back, especially as a safety, big, long rangey. But he hasn't been as good as he was last year, and it's just hard for me to believe that he's going to recover down the road after all these concussions. I mean, concussions are brutal injuries for those of you who don't know. So Right, and obviously they hurt your future almost more than they hurt your present. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I'm on the safe side with concussions. I, I don't want to see those guys. Playing, yeah, so. I, I mean, I think I think we uh, there's a better chance that because of the wider frame and because of his the potential of playing in the future, I think there's a better chance we see Evan back out there than Jay at this point. Yeah, if he's still trying to get a spot in the NFL, then yeah, but he he just hasn't been the same Evan Worthington that we saw in 2017. So. No, and but I mean, luckily Rakestraw looks to be evolving into that role nicely. Anyway, we went over Visca, KD, Evan. Jay, it's unfortunate that there's this many injuries at this That's point. That's about it besides the kickers, but I think we kind of know neither Alex Kinney or James Stefano are expected to play this Kenny weekend. Kinney is still sidelined with a broken, broken collarbone. Um, there's still a chance he could come back by the end of the year, but he'd need to be able to be fully mobile because, as you know, kickers need to reach up to catch a snap or something. Yeah, if it's a bad snap. Yeah, so he needs to be mobile. I think he, it's going to be at least another two weeks. I don't want to make this about myself, but fun fact, I uh, have broken my collarbone three times, which is obviously what Alex Kinney is suffering. Yeah. Um, two you should make th- it about yourself. Two, two about out of the three were in hockey. The third one was uh, riding a bike. But um, the last time I did it, it I – I'd broken it like two weeks before our playoffs, and it was my senior year. I did end up playing in playoffs. So you can play, especially if you get that adrenaline flowing. But uh, if you're looking out for your future, it's probably not the greatest idea. Yeah, and re-injuring it is not something to joke around about. Anyway, he'll be out, obviously, this week. So that's five guys out. And then James Stefano is still sidelined with I – don't, I don't know how serious it is at this point. It's kept him out a few games. A groin injury, but luckily – Walk-on kicker Tyler Francis was excellent in his first game. Tyler he, Francis, he was the MVP for the Buffs. He nailed he nailed a 48-yard field goal, which was right down the middle. I think good things could be coming for his future, and I'm interested to see how the situation plays out if he continues to perform this well. Yeah, I I don't have too much to add. I think I think you're right. We could have a kicking competition next year. Uh, especially if Stefano doesn't play for the rest of the think season. Of, think about the storyline for a kicking competition between a 32 at the time next year, a 32-year-old Australian facing off against a 19-year-old walk-on. Mm-hmm. I mean, have, have, it sounds like straight from Hollywood. Right, and I think Tyler Francis would have a good shot at beating him because James Stefano, even before the injury, didn't look great. And he was kind of playing with an injury for a couple weeks there, but... Uh, he didn't look great. He was obviously making all of his extra points, but he missed a few uh, field goals that were pretty close. So it'll be interesting. He Stefano hasn't looked as good as he did last year either. So, And field goals could potentially be the difference between winning and losing, especially when you play Utah and Cal. I don't think as much so this week, but in the last two games, which are still going to be important, uh, I think that that could be the deciding factor. Anyway, it's time we get to score predictions. A lot of our listeners aren't going to like this. I'm taking Washington State 41 to 27. 
I think they're able to win by multiple scores. I think they have their way with a Buffs defense that's reeling right now. I think Minshew is able to exploit them a little bit, but I don't think Washington State is going to play great defensively. They'll play well enough to win, probably, at least in my opinion. I don't think they're going to wow anyone, but I think they'll they'll get the job done and minimize the Buffs scoring. I think that's a pretty good prediction, especially uh, Washington State. I think the the winner of the game will s- almost certainly score 40 points, so I'd put it at, like, 42 I'll get. I'll say that CU's offense gets going a little bit, especially if they get Visca back. That that'll just give so much more confidence to the rest of the offense that they have their playmaker back. So I'm gonna put it at 42-34 Washington State. Same as last week, huh? We'll have we'll see a shootout, but um, Washington State will end up getting it done. I think they will too. They're the number eight team in the country, and you know what? Good teams in the Pac-12 find a way to win games. I'm not saying the Buffs are a bad team, but with the way Wazoo has been playing, they lost one tight game on the road to USC in their third game of the year. They're on a five-game win streak since then. We talked about the opposite of it, but if we said that McIntyre hasn't beaten a team that he wasn't expected to beat, this week would be that, that week having the number eight team coming into Folsom Field. Do you think things change if they're able to upset Washington State this weekend? I think that, you know, coaching is when when things are going good, you're the hero. When things are going bad, you're the villain. It's just kind of an up and down roller coaster ride type of dilemma. If they upset Washington State, I think everything changes. I think Mike McIntyre is the second coming of Nick Saban in, in, in the eyes of Buffs fans. Well, maybe maybe that's a little drastic. I think it's over way overly drastic, actually, now that I think about it. But nonetheless, I think that he'll slowly get off the hot seat if they're able to win this game, and he'll get a lot more credit. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't erase the fact that they blew a 31-3 lead against the worst team in the conference or that they got crushed again by Khalil Tate this time through the air, but it's easier to forget. That's how I'll put it. You know what I mean? Right, and college football is a a week-to-week thing, so it'll be interesting what we're talking about when we get to this time uh, next week. It could be almost two different narratives. And hey, upsets happen all the time. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's likely, but I don't think it would be smart to rule out the possibility. Right now, Washington State's favored by six. That's kind of on the lower side. I thought they probably would have been favored by 10 coming in. Maybe getting back Visca helps. But this is a type of thing that I think any given Saturday, anything can happen. We've certainly seen it, and uh, it should ring true the rest of the way for the buffs at this point. Anyway... Uh, moving on to men's basketball now, moving from the gridiron to the hardwood. They uh, had their final exhibition matchup of the season on Saturday against the Colorado School of Mines. Um, they defeated them 66-57, to but it wasn't, it wasn't the type of performance that we were all hoping and expecting to seeing out of the buffs. They let um, the ore diggers shoot over 40% from the, beyond the arc. They made 11 threes. Um, we saw some good things, especially out of Tyler Bay, who I said I wanted to see a lot out of. He had a double-double with 14 points and 11 boards. Kenley Wright added 12 points in the effort. I just have to imagine that this is a team that's not in midseason form yet with the way they, they, they performed. Yeah, you, you, you got to take that exhibition game with a little bit of a grain of salt. Obviously, they didn't look great. Um, they were losing minds at halftime. They, they completely deserved it. They weren't shooting the ball well. They weren't playing great perimeter defense. They really didn't play great perimeter defense for the entire game. Or on the other side, 
uh, Sioux couldn't make anything from beyond the arc. So um, you kind of got to take a, a little bit of a grain of salt because the guys that were shooting the ball a lot in that game aren't going to be the guys that are shooting the ball a lot in games that do matter. And they um, ran a very vanilla offensive game plan to add on to that. Tad Boyle said they ran one play the whole game, and the rest they just ran a half-court offense. Right. So you, you got to take a little bit of it with a grain of salt. I don't think just because that they were losing the minds at halftime means that they're going to end up you know, having a bad season. That's not what you can take from this game. you got to take the good with the bad. And what, yeah. really what, what we learned is what kind of young guys are ready to contribute on this basketball team. And it doesn't look like much. Yeah, I was hoping to see a little bit more out of Shane Gatling in particular. He was 0 for 3 from the field, which to me was worrisome because they brought the guy in to make shots. You know what I mean? Coming off the bench, they, they, they wanted him to be that six man. I also thought it was kind of interesting that Deleon Brown did not play as a coaching decision. There's some speculation that he's kind of fallen out of the lineup a little bit. I don't really know if there's any flavor or leverage to that, but that's, that's not good because he, was, he played an important role off the bench last year. I, I have to agree with you, though, Chase, that they just the young guys didn't show that they're ready to play. And on a team that's so young as a whole, that's not good. I don't, I don't think it was the end of the world that they didn't blow minds out. I do think it was concerning, to say the least, that they struggled, not, you know, they struggled to stop shots from beyond the three against the Division II team when they're going to fa- be facing Oregon and all these really good teams in the Pac-12, and that the young guys seemed like there was going to be a lot of growing pains early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to have to figure out how to defend the three-point line because Mines make way too many three-point shots, and I'm sure that's something that Tad was not happy about. And Tad said that his guys can learn something from the Mines guys, and I think... It, in, the, in the classroom or on the court? I think both. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree uh, But that. especially perimeter defense. The Mines didn't have any trouble stopping CU's three-point game, and CU does have some good three-point shooters. As you mentioned, Shane Gatling, but even Deshaun Schwartz and... Name and Wright can knock it down a little bit, and some of these younger guys can shoot it as well, but they weren't making anything. Lucas Seward is a guy that can really shoot it from three, and they weren't making anything from the Seward did line. have two really nice threes, one from straight away and one from the corner. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the last time I saw a big man shoot a three ball from the, from the corner. Yeah, he's, he's got a really good shot for a big man, and, and they're going to have to utilize that because they don't have – all that many guys that can knock it down, but they do have quite a few. And um, the Deleon Brown situation is going to be an interesting one to follow. I, I heard it had something to do with class, but I don't know. There's probably lots of different rumors floating around, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if how many minutes he gets in the future. But um, it does look like they have a lot of guys that can play that wing position. I was impressed with Deshaun Schwartz. Just He didn't shoot the ball all that much, but he did look good out there, and he looks a lot bigger and stronger. He looks like he can play a lot more positions this year, and as long as he can shoot the ball well, I think he could really help out this team. He's a guy who just needs to step up. They can't re- rely on McKinley for you know three quarters of their offense or a quarter of their offense, even more. You know, they can't they can't expect that to happen game after game. They need more people who can shoot the basketball. They need a big man to play in the Pac-12. So I think that the you know 
see where playing better defensively was assuring in a sense. Even he if didn't go up against. He, I mean, he wasn't against, look, he wasn't against Ball season. Ball or one of these huge dudes from the Pac-12. But at the same time, he looked good against an, a, a center who was much bigger than him. And you're right. He did shoot the ball really well. He was five for nine from the field, two for three from the three, as you said. Two well, for three from the three is as a big man. I mean, that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But everybody else didn't shoot very well. Shane Gatling was 0 for four from the three. Evan Batty was 0 for 2. He was 2 for 10. I think both Batty and Gatling were playing with a little bit uh, too much nerves playing in front of that uh, bus crowd for the first time. That that stuff can actually get, get into your head a little bit. I think they'll be a little bit more comfortable once they get into their other games. Um, but if they're not shooting the ball very well, that's going to really hurt this team. Oh, I, I think so, definitely. I just I just hope they don't live and die through these hot streaks like they did last season, you know, in a game against San Diego, the, the hoop was as big as a golf hole. You know what I mean? They could not buy they could, a, yeah. the old, the old saying, you can't buy a shot. I think that applied to their performance, uh, you know, in a couple games last year against lesser competition, but then man, you start, these guys start knocking down shots and all of a sudden they have an upset two back to back upsets against both Arizona schools. So I think the Jekyll and Hyde thing, they need to even it out a little bit and play better on a more consistent nightly basis. I think that's going to ultimately be the key to this team's success. Right, and they're going to have to find some consistency from some guys that we've obviously haven't seen play consistent recently. And so I think they can rely on guys like Tyler Bay, McKinley Wright every night. They should be able to, but they're going to have to find some consistency from guys like we mentioned, Deshaun Schwartz, Evan Batty, and even probably some Lucas Seward. Out of Batty... Gatling and Schwartz, which one do you say that steps up? I think Batty's going to play a big role on this team. I think I talked to him a little bit after the game off the record. He said, you know, it's been an emotional journey. He, you know, he confined to me that, you know, he, he felt tears in his eyes at points before the game. And I think, you know, that emotional roller coaster that you ride after having two major setbacks, which would have knocked people out of, you know, most people would have had to retire from the sport, obviously, with um, having not the first one wasn't bad where he had to take an academic redshirt. You know, that's not the end of the world. But the circumstances in which it happened were a little bit demoralizing in a sense. And then the second, he was working out at a gym in L.A. in preparation from his, for his rehab, and all of a sudden he faints and has a stroke. You know, these are just two really tough things. I know that there were points in his career where he didn't think he was ever going to come back. Um, and then, you know, he, he does, and it's, I think it was just a little bit tough from him, for him from an emotion standpoint, and rightfully so. I expect him to step up a lot going forward. Right, and they're going to need him, especially – as one of their very few bigs. Out of those three, though, I think I, I'm going to give it to Deshaun Schwartz. I think out of the two, the scrimmage and the exhibition this past weekend, out of those two, I thought he kind of looked the best to me. And um, I think he can really help him out shooting the basketball. Yeah. And that'll I, be the big big difference. Shane Gatling as well, but I think both Shane Gatling and Evan Batty will, fi- will take a little bit more time getting comfortable in the system and playing in front of these crowds and that kind of stuff. Whereas Deshaun Schwartz went through it all last year and is a little bit more ready. And I think he's going to contribute a little bit more early, at least. The thing that's intriguing about Schwartz and Batty that I can't say about Gatling is they both have a variety of abilities in this offense. They can get to the hoop. They can shoot from the perimeter. They can get in the paint. You know, they can hook shot. They can do a little bit of everything. What's worrisome for me about Gatling is beyond perimeter shooting, he doesn't really have that wide of a repertoire. 
Right. And we haven't seen it at all. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they run some plays to him or what. I think he's going to be a solid sixth man, sixth or seventh man that comes off, off the bench and can score for this team. But I don't think he is a guy that you can rely on as a starter at this point. Yeah, and to that point, I'm interested to see how the Deleon Brown situation plays itself out. Now, I know as a former hotshot, I know it's hard to envision right now, but a hotshot commodities broker, Tad Boyle has notoriously been a little bit tougher academically than other coaches would be, but I think if they can get him back, that'll that'll help them out a whole lot too. But Especially defensively, defending the perimeter. I, yeah. I think that was the biggest flaw that I saw uh, on Saturday. So it would be nice to have Deleon Brown for that. And without a true big man, that becomes a lot more important. A lot of times last year, we saw him on double teams. We saw him, you know, guarding big men at times, although that didn't always end well. But, you know, anyway, I think we've just saw him thrive in that role a little bit more. And, you know, that's why it's ultimately important to get him back on. Anyway, Chase, do you have any major recruiting news? going on um will Plummer, the 2020 quarterback uh that cu likes as well as Aiden is he related Atkinson. to jake Plummer? there's no relation to jake Plummer, okay. but he is from arizona and um he is going to be visiting again this weekend uh he obviously visited a few weeks ago we talked about it on here but i think that's the 2020 quarterback that kurt roper really likes and feels like he's comfortable with his only other offer is North Texas. He's kind of a guy that flew under the radar. This is his first year um, playing quarterback, actually. His brother, not playing quarterback overall, but playing quarterback at the varsity level. His brother uh, went to Purdue as a quarterback, and so he has just now taken the starting reins. He played tight end and wide receiver previously, so it's kind of interesting. That's why he's flown so far in the, under the radar, but I do like that North Texas is the other school to offer him. That's obviously Seth Luttrell. And a uh, hot name for the Bumps head coaching job. <laughs> and, they, and they run a very uh, good air raid offense. So the fact that an air raid coach likes Will Plummer, I think, is, is a good thing for this, this team. That's huge. Obviously, they'll need to replace Montez after next year. But anyway, football team looks to get back on track against number eight Washington State. Basketball team tips off Tuesday. And we will have all the coverage and more here on Radio 1190. This has been the Howell Stern Show for Chase Howell. I'm Jack Stern. Peace.